Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today, I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Dr. Katrina Bledsoe and Karen Gardner. Katrina is a trained evaluator, mixed methodologist, and social psychologist. Her evaluation work is focused on community-based social services, health and education evaluation and programming, and culturally responsive and equity-focused approaches. Karen has almost 30 years of research and evaluation experience on a wide range of programs and policies related to low-income individuals, including employment and training programs, welfare reform, and child support enforcement. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi, Katrina. Hey, wonderful. Thanks for bringing us together. My pleasure. And now let me, let me be a downer for a second. Employment and a fair wage are crucial to providing essential elements of well-being, such as food, housing, and health, which is why income equity is so important. Apprenticeships and internships can offer paths to well-paying jobs, but the same people receiving inequitable wages often don't receive these opportunities. So how can we change this trend and provide better outcomes for people who traditionally struggle to earn a truly fair wage? Uh, Karen, you just evaluated a Department of Labor initiative that aimed to expand registered apprenticeships to non traditional occupations and populations typically underrepresented in apprenticeships. Uh, so what can you tell us about the potential benefits of these apprenticeships as well as areas that still need addressing? Thank you, Eric. So registered apprenticeship is a workforce training model that combines on-the-job training from a mentor at the work site with related classroom instruction. So one of the nice aspects of apprenticeship is that the participants are actually hired. They earn while they learn. They receive a wage, and the wage increases over time as they master new skills. Apprenticeship is used widely in other countries, like Switzerland, Austria, and Germany, but in the U.S. it's traditionally been used in the construction industry. Uh, Because it's a promising workforce training model, the U.S. Department of Labor, like you said, Eric, is trying to expand it in this country to non-traditional industries, that is, those that are not construction. So this includes healthcare, advanced manufacturing, IT, and to participants traditionally underrepresented in apprenticeship. So women, Black, Latinx, Asian Pacific Island workers, uh, basically people who are not white men, which has been the population traditionally involved in apprenticeship. So after studying one of DOL's efforts to expand apprenticeship called the American Apprenticeship Initiative, can you sort of characterize what you've been seeing with these, uh, you know, non-traditional apprenticeships? You know, um, what are sort of successes with wages and what are the gaps that are remaining, would you say? Okay, so we explored uh, the extent to which the American Apprenticeship Initiative met the goals of expanding to non-traditional populations and um, non-traditional occupations. And we found that, in fact, most American Apprenticeship Initiative apprentices were from underrepresented populations. So that was a big gain. Yeah. Um, upwards of two-thirds were. And um, most apprentices did, in fact, work in non-traditional occupations. The most common occupation was advanced manufacturing with a fair number in healthcare. And I do want to say a word about advanced manufacturing because that's a term that maybe people aren't that familiar with. But when one thinks about manufacturing, the image might be of heavy machinery that takes a lot of physical labor to operate. Advanced manufacturing actually uses technology to create whatever the product is rather than labor. So production activities, um, they use information, automation, computation, um, software. And so it's really a different form of manufacturing. We did see that all groups of apprentices increased their earnings from the period prior to starting their apprenticeship 
through um, comparing it to one year after completing, on average, apprentices' earnings grew about 50%. There were some differences, however, between groups. Interestingly, women's earnings grew faster than men's earnings, but at the end, they were still earning a little bit less uh, than men, but the gap between earnings decreased significantly between the pre- and post-apprenticeship period. Uh, White and Hispanic apprentices' earnings grew at a slightly faster pace than those of Black apprentices. Mm -hmm. So we're still exploring some of the differences for these gaps. Uh, One difference is occupational selection. We found that apprentices who worked in IT and healthcare occupations had the largest wage gains compared to, say, construction and advanced manufacturing. So most of the difference in earnings growth between Black and white apprentices actually occurs among women. And for example, we saw that more white women apprentices than black women apprentices enrolled in registered nursing programs, apprenticeship programs, whereas more black women apprentices pursued pharmacy technology apprenticeships. So both are good career opportunities, but in terms of wages, registered nurses make much more than pharmacy technicians. Interesting. Yeah. So some of the other differences, it's attributable to whether the apprentice already worked for the employer or whether the apprenticeship start started um, or whether the apprentice was a newly hired individual at the employer's work site. We found that new workers have much higher earnings gains in part because they earn less before the apprenticeship than did the people already working at the company who we like to call incumbent workers. But in the end, the new workers actually exceeded the earnings of the existing workers. So that was an interesting finding. Right. Uh, Katrina, I see you nodding uh, on screen here. You, you want to talk about how these results dovetail uh, with work you've done, internships and apprenticeships? And, and, um, and I know you, you wanted to define those terms, right, internships and apprenticeships. So you want to start there and then, and then talk about how, what, what you make of these findings? Yeah, and then just sort of because I just found that um, I just thought that, um, that Karen's just her study is the thing that I really, I really want to come, really want to compliment on. But I think, you know, one of the things that people tend to do is they tend to go, oh, hey, you know, what's the same about, you know, what about, um, uh, you know, apprenticeships versus internships? And they usually like to think they're the same and they're not. And a lot of times um, organizations will hire folks in apprenticeships with the thought of moving them into the organization and into um, that particular sector within the organization. So. So, um, so I, you know, want to make that that case. And a lot of instances, um, although not all, but a lot of internships are, are much more student based. That's where we've gotten a lot of our folks, um, although not necessarily. But again, much more short term, much more with a set of criteria and, and usually um, either a, a stipend of some kind, but not a living wage um, there. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things about. Karen's report. I found this was really a, just just a real um, interesting study, and I'm really hoping that um, you're going to continue to dig into that because I was thinking about one of the things that I was saying earlier before we started was that even though within the AEI, um, um, you know, apprenticeship or program, there's still gaps. So you still have gaps between everybody's improved. But you still have gaps between different groups, as as Karen pointed out. Um, in particular, some groups actually make a better um, run or 
they make faster gains than other groups do. Um, for instance, the finding with men and women, I know that women are making a, a bigger gain or a much quicker gain than men, but some of it is is that they're still a little bit below them even when they turn when it comes out to be in terms of uh, actual wage. Um, part of it is is women start at a lower rate anyway. So there so even if you move that, there's still unless you're really going to like, you know, close the gap, there's always going to be a tiny bit of a gap. And I'm not making an excuse for that. I'm just saying, unless we're willing to close the gap um, and start with that wage so that everybody can come up, then you're probably still going to have that, that smaller gap, no matter how quickly women might raise. Um, I also wanted to say a little something about this in terms of the differences we see between African-Americans and whites and other groups who may be in different um, uh, different sectors and what they choose to be in. For instance, if you're looking at uh, black women and white women, a lot of instances is that it, it takes a longer time to go through nursing school. Um, I knew I grew up with a nurse and who taught nursing, but she taught certified nursing. My mom was a registered nurse, but to go through actual school, you had to go through three years. And then of course you have to go through um, you know, a, an apprenticeship in, a, in that way, and then take a board. A lot of folks don't have that opportunity to do that, nor do they have the financial backing. So you also have that gap um, between there. What you're going to find is those folks who might be in a farm tech or, or a certified nurse, they can get there a lot quicker within a year's time, maybe 18 months, and they can start working immediately or apprentice while they go. What do we need to do in those apprenticeships to ensure that we don't necessarily have those gaps in like who goes in there, especially for men? Women tend to go in the helping profession. So, of course, it makes sense that they're going to be in healthcare and things of that nature, whereas men tend to go into, um, you know, STEM, all of those things that we have historically been um, segregated in. And that still continues. So we're still dealing with that. All those programs like AI are those um, are the way to I think they're making a move towards trying to um, move us in a different direction, but we're still struggling with that. I totally agree with you, Katrina. One of the difficult aspects of this study is trying to disentangle what the drivers are of the actual wage gains. You know, is it because it's women? Is it because it's healthcare? How much is it occupation? How much is it that somebody's been in the workforce versus not been in the workforce? You know, I, I do believe we can close the earnings gap between men and women if we can encourage more women to go into the occupations that pay higher. So I think that's an area where apprenticeship programs can put some more focus, um, how to educate potential apprentices about the opportunities with each different kind of career path. I would personally like to learn a lot more about how these individual apprentices ended up in the programs. Um, how much of it was these were the options available to them versus this is something they sought out and they really wanted to be, say, a pharmacy tech versus an RN? Or did they not have the opportunity because there was no RN, RN apprenticeship program available? So I'm with you. I think there are a lot of factors um, that that really influence why people end up in certain spaces. But to your point, it could be that people were really like, hey, we really like farm tech. It's great. It's been something that has been a, a, a way and we we understand you know, it's ways to do the sciences. Um, it could be that. 
and there could be other aspects of it of like that's what we were given the choice of um you know issues of that nature where i think that apprenticeship programs to your point about what what they can do as well because i really do think that apprenticeship programs if people can invest in those can help sort of break some of those locks that we think of that might some of those barriers such as i would think that you know if women wanted to be you know um go into manufacturing or it or tech usually they still bear the brunt of you know primary caregiving whether Mm -hmm. it is um you know children or you know elder care the sandwich generation is a lot of women bearing that brunt um how do we how can apprenticeship programs for instance i would think what what can they do to sort of help alleviate that do you have a little extra time um you know are we longer are you willing to you know provide some space for us to to have a, like child care on site you know all of those different things right. there's there's way to do that I think that's a very good point. And one of the findings from our study, I don't know if this, if you noted this when you were looking through um, the report, but most apprentices did complete or they were still enrolled at the time that we collected data, the follow-up period. Um, About 15% though, and this is pretty consistent across all the different groups, left before completing their apprenticeship. And the most common reason for leaving was personal and family problems. And that was the most common reason for all different groups. But if you look at women, it was over 50% of women cited that reason as opposed to maybe 39% of men. And that brings me back to your point, which is what can programs do in the way of providing supportive services while people are in apprenticeships? And here... You know, we're talking about the support of services primarily being provided through the employer because that's where the apprentice spends most of their time. But in our study, we did see that most people, regardless of their group, did not receive supportive services as part of their program. And those who did receive services, it was more likely to be kind of an academic tutoring type than a supportive service um, like a transportation or a child care or something like that. So I think there's definitely more that can be done there um, to help people yeah, uh, persist I, and complete their programs. Yeah, you know, and, and I agree that I, the, that's not surprising about, certainly about um, women bearing that. And then once you start cutting across and, you know, getting even further and going into racial, you know, um, gender disparities and I, I have to say, I was really struck at, you know, that there was disparities, you know, uh, ethnic and racial disparities. Um, but every time I, <laughs> just to say that every time I'm in a space when I'm looking at that, I always notice that um, that African Americans really struggle in that in in the space and just about across the sectors. And I'm still trying to get a sense of what that is and if there's something deeper in that. And then when you start cutting across gender, mm-hmm. it gets even more. Um, anything that that you're thinking about that, Karen? I'm, I'm looking at that. Yeah, it definitely is, like you said, something that persists. And I'm thinking about one statistic in particular. Most apprentices, when they complete, stay with their current employer. Uh, the, the exceptions are people in the IT world who leave to go somewhere else. And I think that really is part of why we see IT wages increasing as quickly as we do, because people are taking off and leaving for 
the, the highest bidder, so to speak. But of all the groups, uh, the Black apprentices are the least likely to stay with their current employer. And that's not to say most of them aren't with the current employer, but a lower percentage are than, say, white or Latinx or Asian and Pacific Islander um, apprentices. And so that just makes me wonder how can we kind of dig in more and learn about what it is about the apprenticeship experience with the employer that seems to be ending (laughs) with the apprenticeship's conclusion for Black apprentices more often than um, other racial or ethnic groups. And I can't really answer that question with the data that I have, but I think it's definitely one worth looking into. I think that's where our data, you know, when we're in the future, as we're looking further on that, where we want to dig into Mm -hmm. what's the experience that people are having in those apprenticeships where you may be doing better than you might have been doing someplace else, but you're just not motivated to stay. Some of it could be family, some of it could be Mm -hmm. community, some of it could be health. You know, there's a lot of different things. But, you know, what about the also in the employer situation that might make it like mm-hmm. you feel comfortable or you're belonging, you, right. know, you feel included, um, even if you have the skill sets. So, Katrina, I know you were spitballing there, but anything, you know, are there any best practices we know of that we might want to marry to these apprenticeship programs, I, even knowing, even understanding we want more data and there's definitely a, a call for more data, but anything we can sort of some tentative steps we could take now? Yeah, I, I don't know. Karen, Karen, did you want to say anything on that? Or um... Well, one thing that we haven't talked about, I think, is worth mentioning, and that's the role of pre-apprenticeship in apprenticeship access and then completion. So the American Apprenticeship Initiative also supported pre-apprenticeship programs, which, unlike apprenticeship programs, they are not registered in the sense that they aren't approved by either the federal government or a state apprenticeship agency. They're much shorter. Uh, They focus more on building some basic academic skills, um, career knowledge, some potential on-the-job learning, but it's not paid. And the idea is that a pre-apprenticeship program has to have a direct pathway into, or at least the opportunity to enter a registered apprenticeship program. So we did see that an even larger share of pre-apprentices were from underrepresented groups, which was interesting. So it definitely seems to be a way to identify or cast the net wider for potential apprentice applicants. And I think that it could be, you know, to the extent that we're seeing differences in groups and the types of occupation, again, looking at farm tech versus registered nurse, if it's a matter of not having a certain skill level to get into an apprenticeship program, pre-apprenticeship can be an on-ramp to a different type of program. So I know the Department of Labor is very interested in pre-apprenticeship. It's something that they're continuing to study and to look at how these programs are structured and how they have on-ramps to registered apprenticeships. So I think that's one strategy that bears more exploration. I think other strategies are kind of the guidance and counseling around selecting a program, uh, providing supportive services while people are in a program so that they can persist and overcome whatever potential barriers might disrupt their 
their program completion. Yeah, no. Uh, and Eric, I know you were going to say something. I'll just jump in really quickly. I think Please. just to the, the point of, of um, Karen talking about pre-apprenticeships, I, I also say that internships are also, even mm-hmm. though they're at a time, that's also a way to sort of get your feet wet, um, mm-hmm. albeit at a very um, you know limited time, to an apprenticeship because at least you're walking away with some skill set that would be helpful um, mm-hmm. as well. So I absolutely agree with that. And, and, you know, Karen's points about guidance and counseling and services, you know, and being able to provide support and mentoring and coaching um, mm-hmm. you know, fits in that, that space of guidance um, because so many people end up in, in spaces. And um, what I find even um, in apprenticeships and at the internship level is if you don't have a mentor that, mm-hmm. um, that uh, is there that you can, you know, use as a support network, even if you're only talking to that person like once a month, um, you just, it, it just feels like a very lonely space. Right. Um, and the other people thing I would say is those sort of support networks and communities of practice or, you know, or, you know, like learning affinity groups or, or those or something where people can, can um, talk about their experiences mm-hmm. and compare and contrast and learn from one another. Um, those are those are very successful as well. Right. I'm so glad you brought up the mentor because the mentor is such a key component of a registered apprenticeship program. The mentor provides the bulk of the on-the-job learning. It can either be one-on-one or small groups. So if you don't have a good relationship with your mentor, it can really affect your time in the program, your impression of the program, and even your interest kind of in the industry generally. And I don't think we've, we know a lot about the importance of having, say, a mentor that looks like you, um, who's female or who's black or who's Latinx. And um, that's another area that I think is worth digging into. Absolutely. Eric, I know you had some, you were going to have a comment in there. I was just going to point out, and I think you, you referred to this a little bit, you know, but Katrina, you said earlier that, you know, in some cases, um, and this might be more true for African-American participants, but, you know, without that support, that home support to pursue those um, more extensive certifications. So maybe something to consider is, is having that support built into these programs might be another way to help with retention or help people just go for those more lucrative tracks that they otherwise feel like they can't pursue. Yeah. And that's, and that's across the board. I think, you know, just um, of any background, some backgrounds might benefit or have access to, to um, more <laughs> of, of, those that of those strategies that we were talking about but across the board for anybody if you've got mentoring um you know and support uh it's a complete guarantee that everything's going to go rosy rosy but in in Mm -hmm. most cases you're probably you're going to do a lot better than if you do not have those i mean even in my own experience this industry that we're in can be a very difficult one to to stay in. And for me, it made all the difference to have a mentor who really kind of walked me through slowly and surely how to do each piece of this job with doing the project work and the proposals and everything else. And I know a lot of people who cycle in and out of our industry quickly, I think is because they don't have somebody there kind of showing them the path. Yeah. 
And that's and that exactly the same thing. I've been in it for probably far longer than than um, a lot of folks I know. Um, you know, from what I've heard, some of the folks certainly in the in the DC area when I came to town, they said oh, it's about a five year. You know, it's there's a burnout. It's about five years, and you know, I'm 20 years in. So, um, but that, <laughs> but but the but the issue is is that I I had a mentor mentors you know, in different perspectives, some from the theoretical perspective, some from the project management perspective, you know, some from doing research and evaluation, um, you know, just just having those folks and then started to get more mentors. So, you know, in a way, you just build that network of folks. And mm-hmm. that's really, really helpful. Um, yeah, never underestimate the power of a network, I'm finding. It's right. just, yeah, it does a lot. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's not a once, it's not, you know, one dose and you're done, right? You need, you need to sort of have that, that thread pulling you through your career. But it's also interesting. We have, a, we have a lot of other questions that I guess is something to be validated as well. But um, even the early offing, it's great, Karen, that you have all this initial data. And yet we've identified a lot more data that's going to help us chart that way forward. Uh, so I'm glad we got to talk about this. Thank you both for joining me. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And it was thanks, fun talking thanks. with you, Katrina. It was fun talking with you too. I love this study. I, I, I can't wait to see where you're going with it next. So. I can't wait either. Well, the good news is you don't have to wait too much longer to join us again at The Intersect. Mm-hmm.